Good morning, Jamie. Well, afternoon. Good I think. afternoon, man. It's noon. Noon o'clock. It is noon. Doing another lunchtime podcast. What's going on? How are things? Things are going pretty good. I don't have a ton to report on the, and I actually thought I wasn't going to have a single thing to report on just because I was finishing up some stuff with work these last couple weeks to polish off a course before it's ready to publish. And that, uh, really takes a lot of extra mental bandwidth sometimes to, to go through those things. So I didn't get a, a lot of time to work on chronic, but this morning I was able to dig in into some stuff and handle some issues that we were running into on uh, trying to connect to our production servers. So you probably haven't even seen the the code that I pushed up, but if you want to talk about it, we can go through that now. Yeah, go ahead and explain it. Cause I think I may know what the issue is, but Please. So, so the issue, and this has been a theme recently with us and schemes for things. Uh, the issue is actually that the scheme being returned as the like what the WebSocket URL should be mm-hmm. to the client application Local was off. was uh, just the WS and not the WSS that it should have been. Oh, and yes, because because what I was seeing when I would log in production was I was able to log in now. Uh, because mm-hmm. we had another issue where um, the um, application was using kind of just the whack whack without the without the scheme, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So that works fine on the web; it just doesn't work fine on the on the app. So once we fixed that, I was able to log in, but then immediately I wasn't being connected. So I I knew there was something wrong with with that uh, URL that we returned when. Uh, when we call the connect GraphQL API. Yeah. And the reason behind this is just really me being a novice when it comes to configuring Phoenix and the fact that Elixir and Erlang, I don't think are usually uh, reverse proxied. So I don't think it's super common for you to set Nginx in front of it. I think a lot of times you just let it handle its own thing. Like it's a stupidly fast web server on its own. Just let it do its own thing. So that I think was sort of the issue that we were running into is that we have it set up to be reverse proxied behind Nginx. Nginx is doing the SSL termination. So our actual application doesn't need to know anything about SSL, but through a series of uh, configuration things that exist on the endpoint inside of Phoenix land, you can set the, the port that you want it to use, which in this case, it runs on port 4,000. That's not publicly exposed uh, on our servers, but then Nginx talks to it locally. And which is fine, but I was also using that port for the URL port inside of the configuration, which if it's anything uh, other than 443, then it's automatically sets the scheme to be HTTP and more importantly, in this case, to WS. So by just uh, adding another flag to our data bag that uh, configures this stuff in production, I have it set to where you can say application enable SSL, and it will set that to 443 and it'll start returning URLs from the helpers that are HTTPS and WSS. So nice. once that's merged, it'll configure itself and go out the door. And then we should be able to get those connections coming back through. Because what was happening is it's returning the WS URLs. And those don't point to anything because I'm not even listening on port 80. Well, actually, I think I am. I think I'm redirecting. But it, the WebSockets don't follow the redirect. So even though you're hitting a port 80 that is redirecting to 443, it doesn't change that scheme over and do that stuff quite right. So by just having it go the SSL route where we should be sitting pretty. Nice. Did you discover that like playing around with it or 
Yeah, I had a do. hunch when you told me what happened the other day, but I didn't have time to actually sit yeah. down and look at it until earlier this morning. So I sat down, I changed the Mac app to point to this, and then I just set a breakpoint uh, so I could see what the URL was that came back. And I was like, there it is. It's exactly what I was expecting to. I did dig around a little bit to see how I could configure that differently. And I, I went down this this path of like, and I actually think I'll probably still commit this code at some point, but changing our WebSocket endpoint uh, thing that takes in a URL and figures out what to return for the WebSocket URL that can re- relies on like the scheme that it was working with. And, but I wanted it. We also have this thing for ignore port, which is a configuration value that we set and we have no tests to ensure that that works. And I was like, why don't we have any tests for this? And it's because stubbing out config values that are set on the application mm-hmm. when the application is running is actually kind of hard to do yeah. in Elixir. So I had tweaked some things around to where uh, we had two different um, function arities that we could do to where the default one, which we're using everywhere, is going to default to doing the application config. But you could pass in a keyword argument like config list if you wanted to test those other configurations. So I think I I might still go and do that because I like wrote some tests to make sure this thing was going to work right and and did this. And then I was like, there's got to be an, actually a setting for this because this URL is being generated by the application. Like we don't hard code this anywhere. So I think I'm down the wrong path. Surely enough, uh, I was and I was able to figure out how to configure it. But I still think the testing route that I was taking to uh, kind of abstract out the configuration objects so that we're not hard coded into the application config was uh, cool. probably a good move that I'm going to move in and just push it up in a separate branch later. Nice. Awesome. I'm excited for that. So, cause I'm excited to get this, like starting to work on the app on production. So yeah. Um, I thought it was only an issue cause when I tried to figure out the other issue with the scheme, I just set set the, uh, URL on the, um, I just ran in production mode on uh, the simulator and I was like, oh, this might be just a problem with the simulator. And then then I tried it on on the uh, test flight app and sure enough, I had the same issue. So I was going to look into that this weekend. So glad you uh, got to it, man. That's cool. Yeah, thankfully, it was uh, pretty, pretty quick to fix once I actually had time to sit down because the goal had been I was going to start on the menu bar app and do all that stuff, but I didn't have time to dig into anything Mac related over the, yeah, the last couple of weeks. But now your I'm work in a good is like spot. pretty intense towards the end of the year. Uh, towards the end of a course. So uh, I was mm. polishing off a course that was going to be released. And uh, in this particular one, this is an exam preparation course for the Python Institute entry-level Python programmer certification. That's a thing? Uh, yeah, it's a thing. I And I oh. talk about this in the actual, like, how to prepare for the, or, you know, like the introduction to the course of, like, it's not super common for there to be programming language certifications right yeah so uh yeah but it this isn't the entry level one and which means i had to teach all of the the basics about things but since it's an an exam prep course i have to create a practice exam and that means coming up with a bunch of questions and really racking my brain to make sure these questions are as good as they can possibly be to prepare the student as good as i can and make sure that they kind of match the feel of the actual exam which sort of irked me a little bit in this case because I think the exam was kind of poorly written because it basically just wants you to be a Python interpreter. It's not asking you to like solve problems or do the right thing. It's just like, what happens if I run this code? And like, it'll have some poorly written code on the screen or like it was shadowing like built-in functions that are there to do like to create basic types like the list type. They Mm -hmm. had a variable called list and then they had a parameter inside of a function called list. And I'm like, why would you name it that? Call it like some other, you know, good name or or a bad name. I would take a one letter thing over shadowing a built-in function. 
And uh, yeah, so there's, there's a little bit of frustration there, but it takes a lot of time to sort of write that. And then the study guide. Yeah, the students also, I need to know, like, you know, that's part of the core language. And of course, that, that seems like a common mistake, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that, I guess. is, But I'm like, there's something about writing a bunch of crappy stuff and then being like, read through my crap and tell me why it's crap. That yeah, makes me yeah, mad. Yeah, 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 so yeah. that, that kind of irked me a little bit. But I'm pretty confident when students go through my, my content, there's a lot of like hands-on stuff that they should go through. And if they actually go through and do the hands-on stuff, and this is kind of across the board for everything Linux Academy, uh, we focus on <laughs> learning by having you do things. And, um, if you actually do that, then this, this test would be a breeze. So it's not a, not a huge deal, but writing the exam and, uh, writing kind of a small book as a study guide for it, uh, takes quite a bit of time Yeah, and it's mentally exhausting for sure too, but it's nice to get a course out the door. Well, it's not quite out the door yet, but, uh, it will be shortly. Cool. Uh, anything else? Nope. That's pretty much been it for me, man. How about you? Yeah, I got a short update as well. I did a lot of work, but. Um, all around uh, active backgrounds. I started with uh, just kind of getting some fake data and what the data might look like. And then I created the component um, that will show certain images at certain times. So mm-hmm. when the tick event happens, which then I wired up the tick event. So the tick event happens, it checks the data that it has locally. And if it needs to change an image, it swaps out the uh, image background and it works pretty well. Cool. Yeah, I don't think I've actually seen it working in the application. You showed me the prototype that was just like some raw JavaScript and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I think I saw the component as it was being constructed, but I didn't get to see it in action. Yep. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like the component's pretty much done. Now it just needs to fetch like real data. Uh, okay. The effect itself of the active background is not exactly what I want, um, but that's kind of like sitting down and kind of thinking out the math of like, because there's like three different variables. There's like when you should change or how long the timer is and when you should change it. And then um, how blurry the images get. What's the radius of the blur? And there's one other input that I'm forgetting right now, but those three inputs. probably like a saturation or hue or something like that, I would think. Yeah. Because doesn't it change the darkness factor? Like if it's maximum blurry, isn't it just black? It is. So there's like some some math that we have to like finagle with and get like frame rate and stuff like that down. So, gotcha. um, and that can be tweaked, obviously, in the code that I'm writing now, um, which is I'm active. I'm writing the active background service. So I'm not writing this inside Chronic. I'm writing this as another repo. Um, treating this like a plugin that somebody else would write. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and figured out like what that plugin might look like and where it gets data and when does Chronic know about that data. And um, I've got a pretty good idea. So I, I'm thinking there's some, there's going to be some sort of like plugin or integration metadata mm-hmm. that Chronic needs to know about and that like third party party plugins will be able to write. So this might be like, let's say that you're writing a FreshBooks API. That might be like the or FreshBooks integration. That might be like your API code or, or uh, API token or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's like data that Chronic needs to know about. And then this external service where it gets its data from. So that's right. I started another Elixir application uh, yesterday, two days ago. 
Um, cool. So I'm going to write this service in Elixir. Um, Elixir has a bunch of like different plugins for different um, hex packages for like uh, uh, saving stuff to various um, buckets like S3 or Google Cloud, uh, kind of mm-hmm. like Carrier Wave. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. And then they have um, basically a bunch of image magic stuff that allow us to do the blur, blur things. Oh, cool. So uh, we can keep it in Elixir. So I started a new Phoenix application that's going to be kind of the GraphQL API uh, yesterday. So my first step is to going to get the um, actual images and kind of their stages in time, similar to what I statically wrote um, before. And uh, so yeah, that's where I'm starting. This should go pretty quick. Nice. Yeah. So that's in our repo now. I don't know if you saw it, but. I did not see that actually. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited to, just because I've never worked on anything that kind of has like a, a plugin marketplace, right? Like, I'm like, what does that look like for us to, we have to like, okay, how do we expose this to the developer side of things? So somebody can go and write their own plugin eventually. So yep. we have to have a certain sort of, you know, set of APIs for doing that stuff. And then we have to be like, okay, somebody on the client side is utilizing a thing and they want to interact with a plugin what does it look like to sort of route those requests and, and get those things going in the right direction? So I'm excited to see what that actually looks like because it's just something I've never worked on before. Yeah, and um, that's going to get teased out more. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Um, mm-hmm. But as I build this and um, I thought about this, uh, sounds as a plugin. So when the Pomodoro's done, you you play you can play a sound. Um, and then also like the FreshBooks integration. So I kind of like two of those are like quote unquote internal integrations. And one yeah. is probably going to be like a still internal because we're going to write it, but it's going to be like in an external way. Yeah. Like the FreshBooks integration seems like it. it is one that is like, this is a model for a public facing one, right? Because right. it needs like some client side UI needs to go and fetch some data from third party service. It yep. needs to have some sort of interaction that happens in lifecycle events inside of a workflow item. Yeah, and I looked at like a bunch of different uh, APIs right now that have like plugins. Like mm-hmm. uh, I looked at Slack. Obviously, I'm very familiar with Slack. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's pretty cool because it has like a UI type of component, which I think they do really well, the black kit stuff. Uh, I looked at uh, Shopify, looked at some GitHub stuff, some WordPress stuff. So I kind of saw how how they were doing it, where pieces were and things like that. So obviously I don't know how internally it works, but um, externally I think we can kind of get the same um, feature familiar, familiarity with uh, those kinds of services. Cool. So yeah. that's what I work on for like the rest of the week. I'm excited because next week I'll be off of client work. I took the week off of client work. Uh, instead nice. of working those two days or three days or whatever, since it's Thanksgiving here. Ah, Thanksgiving. Good call. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I should be able to get a lot of uh, chronic work done over the next uh, before the next time we record. So. Yeah, that's super exciting. I'm I'm pretty pumped for this. It's it's nice to see some movement in the various applications after you know. Right. Both of us kind of having a big hiatus uh, in terms of the amount of work that we could really put in. Granted, I'm still not putting in a ton of work, but I'm putting in way more work than I was. Yeah. And, you know, able to figure out some some issues. And now that the Mac app is up to running on the right operating system and uh, not like crashing because dependencies are too old and 
changes to Swift, etc. Um, I'm ready to start digging into the actual menu bar application, which if I'm recalling right, aren't that annoying to build. It's been a long time for me, but yeah, I wonder if Swift UI has any hooks into like like do you need like Swift can you use Swift UI with those types I'm, I'm So I'll be can. able to use Swift UI for the views that we display because by default if you build a menu bar application inside of uh macOS, it actually doesn't have any UI. It just has a menu. Like you get a menu item which is up there which Swift UI won't interact with at all. And then it'll by default display a menu. And hmm. you can change that, which is what most modern things do, right? Like you go and you click on cloud apps thing or one passwords thing, they're going to mm-hmm. display some view to you. And most of the problem is, is most of the time they display those in like a custom popover type. And which is, you know, basically just the box that gives it that little, little tag that mm-hmm. kind of points up towards it. And actually doing that little tag that points to the right spot inside the menu bar. I remember that being kind of tedious a few years back, like, it was a, a little bit annoying, but I'll see what I can do with stuff there. But the way that Swift UI works, since it's made generically to work across iOS and iPad OS, and I think it works mm. on Apple TV, maybe like, and I know it works on the watch, is that it doesn't even have view controllers kind of that it interacts with. It's just views, which are just structs that have some functions on them and stuff, but tying it into various aspects of the Mac, you have to, you can like, you have an NS hosting view controller, which is basically the thing that's going to render out some Swift UI content. And then you can still write some things in there. Problem is not super well documented. So I'm kind of tearing through the Like, and when I say not well documented, I mean, they have documentation for each of the like the methods that exist on these objects and stuff. But all they do is say, this is what it does. They don't show you like, this is how it would be used. Like this is when it would be useful. There's very little guides, if you will, in macOS documentation. Like there's a ton of it for the iOS side of things. But when it comes to doing Mac stuff, like the guides basically are never written. Or if they are written, they never uh, stay up to date with changes that occur. So half the time you can't even build the example projects that they give you. So, and then Mac developers notoriously keep this crap to themselves. So uh, somebody will figure it out and be like, look at this cool thing I did. And they'll show you the end result. They won't show you how they got there, which uh, is a bit of a kicker. But uh, yeah, there's like, there's like one guy on YouTube who does Mac OS tutorials and he took a three year break. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. This guy was really good. That's because he went and worked for Apple. So uh, while he was working at Apple, he couldn't create anything Apple related because it would be potentially taken as like, this is the company's view on whatever. So he apparently changed jobs and he's back to creating stuff, but he hasn't created any Swift UI things yet. So I can't learn from the pro there, but it seems like a big hole, man. Big hole. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I was going to upgrade to Catalina over the weekend and I got scared. So I didn't do it, but I I will do it soon. I think at this point it's like 0.2 or something or 0.3 even maybe. Um, let me check. So I think, I mean, it, there've been, Oh, actually, you know what? It looks like the, Oh, I have an update for something, but I don't think it's my Mac. It is 10, 15, one, unless okay. there is a new update, but there's probably not. I'll, I'll do it. I, I'm sure you've, you figured out all the issues anyway. Just don't move your home directory. Yeah, that I mean, so a hundred percent. The issue that I had was because when this Mac was set up, it was set up with like a typo in the path that the user's home was put in, and it turns out that screwed up everything. So that that was a problem that nobody outside of this very specific situation should ever run into, thankfully. But it was an interesting problem when Finder is broken and 
uh dude literally nothing worked it was, it was ridiculous yeah i i won't i won't do that good good choice cool man anything else no, I think it's going to be our shortest episode of all time, Short. which is good because then I can edit it quickly since I completely failed to edit the other podcast until yesterday. So it's yeah. two weeks late, but I guess we'll just have a, another double header sort of situation where we can release this whenever we want. We don't have to stagger it. Cool. But yeah, I should be able to go off and edit this, but it was a nice chat. It's good to see some movement in, uh, in the application and I'm excited to continue this. Cool, man. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.